everybody you talk to understood the value of voting, understood the the the, the potential power that they had, but the intimidation factor was so incredible, um, so real that it, it really kept a lot of people from voting. This is Live the Legacy, a podcast presented to you by the Andrew Goodman Foundation. This week, we are joined by Robert Masters. Robert is a lifelong New Yorker who attended Queens College during the same period as Andrew Goodman. Robert and Andrew drove together from NYC to Oxford, Ohio in June of 1964 to participate in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee Freedom Summer Training to prepare for their volunteer work in Mississippi, registering Black Americans to vote. Robert is now retired and lives in New York with his wife, Carla. They have three children and five grandchildren. Yeah, I I think this past year was really incredible. Um, On our campus especially, we saw a lot of students just become activated in a way that I think is unparalleled to any time in my life. Um, It was really exciting to know that young people were finally understanding that they had the capacity to make a change. We are also joined by Tamia Folks. Tamia is a rising senior and an Andrew Goodman ambassador at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, majoring in journalism and political science with certificates in gender and women's studies and leadership. Driven by her passions for politics, education, and youth activism, Tamia co-created the Student Civic Immersion Program which aids high school students in crafting service projects centered around civic engagement and policy issues like environmental justice, racial equality, and voter suppression. Tamia co-hosts her own podcast called Podcast Your Vote, which aims to mobilize and empower youth voters. All of her experiences have heightened her passions for politics, journalistic writing, and activism. Without further ado, please enjoy this week's episode of Live the Legacy as we bridge the past and the present to move forward together. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for taking some time out of your day to speak with me. I'm so honored to be here talking to you, and I'm so excited to hear some of the advice and the insight that you have to share today. Um, I first wanted to start with the first question of how you got involved in the civil rights movement. Um, It's obviously an extremely impactful time that all of the people of my generation have learned about in the history books. But for you, what was it that catalyzed you to join the movement? And also, what was it like to be on the ground? Well, you know, it's, you you ask a very good question. And and I've been trying to focus a little bit um, on the origins of my involvement. Um, I would say that, you know, I, I was a, a child of the 60s. And what that really means to me is that we were young, really young people in the 50s. You know, uh, I was born near the end of World War II, so the war didn't mean anything to me. I was way too young. Um, and there was a real optimism in the country during the uh, post-war period. Um, And what happened was there was a 
a big election in 1952 and Eisenhower got elected. And by then I was uh, eight years old. And I remember being not, you know, not to disparage Eisenhower, but, you know, our family were, were big supporters of Adlai Stevenson. And um, I felt like we were the only ones in the whole neighborhood we lived in that were not Ike fans. It was very strange. Everybody walked around with, I like Ike buttons. And, um, and I think, you know, one of the things that happened during his administration was the situation in Little Rock. It was the decision of the Supreme Court in Brown versus the Board of Education, which theoretically was gonna integrate the school systems. And then following that, there was, um, in, I think in 57, there was an attempt to uh, integrate the public school system in Little Rock, Arkansas. And it required the National Guard to come out to protect those kids. Um, I've seen some of those people. They, I mean, now they're obviously old, like me, they're, they're you know, senior citizens. But uh, I, I can vaguely remember just feeling admiration for them, for their courage, because the um, intensity of their, you know, their connection with what was going on at the time just seemed impossible to imagine. So I think that might, may have had you know, some impulse, you know, it gave me a little bit of an impulse to, to, to be interested in that. And then other things happened, um, Emmett Till being murdered, you know, this, these are big, big news items. And unlike today, when the news seems to come and go before you've had a chance to digest it, these news items stayed with you because there was, um, newspapers were much more important, number one. Number two, there was really um, a uniformity in the amount of the news you saw on television. There weren't, you know, the flavor of the week. You could watch MSNBC or you could watch CNN or you could watch Fox or OAN or one of those other stations. So you, you didn't have a choice. You just, you, you watch what you watch. It was a basically a much more factual presentation. And I think the, those big events really, you know, I was young enough to be very uh, much moved by them. Um, but I would say that I, I had no no organized activity until I got to college. In, in high school, um, I, I don't think, you know, it was, we were hearing about it. I was growing up in an area that was kind of isolated. And so we didn't really know as much about what was going on. Maybe if I'd grown up in New York City, instead of Long Island, I would have been more aware of things. I, I don't know, but I went to college and in college, it was like a complete awakening. I got to, um, I, I guess I, I'll use the term radicalized when I was there. Um, I was very much into exploration in, in college without um, necessarily having a, a prejudgment as to what my political 
ish, you know, ideas were and so forth. I was very open to hearing all kinds of ideas. And I, I think the things that most spoke to me and most persuaded me were, um, I, I think civil rights issues, certainly um, even though it was early, um, the, the war in Vietnam was a pretty heavy motivator. Um, it was a activity called, uh, a group called SANE. This was people against nuclear weapons. So these, these are big items. And when you're 18 years old and you're you know, away from home for the first time and you hear all these ideas, they, they can really resonate with you. Uh, and I think you know, that, that's what happened. So I was uh, going, the first year I was in uh, Denver University and then I transferred to Queens College. And you know, so I had now, you know, become much more politically focused, I think, at that point. And in 1963-64, um, it was an effort to uh, create a volunteer group of about a thousand, a thousand people, uh, mostly from northern colleges, to go to Mississippi, primarily to help register Blacks to vote, but also to run what they call freedom schools, and there were some other activities going on. And um, they did, um, Queens College had a long reputation and history of working in the civil rights area, which you know pre preceded me by years and, um, and continued after I was gone. Um, for example, they had a very large education school. And when the concept of desegregation of the public school system came about in Virginia. What happened was they shut down the entire public school system in the state. So the white kids all got to go to what they call private academies, which were probably the same buildings that had been their white only schools. And the black kids had no school. So um, I don't know a lot about it because it really happened before I got to Queens College, but kids in the education school would take a semester and go down to Virginia and organize schools to, uh, to help educate these black kids who were being denied even a basic education. Uh, and eventually the school, they reopened the public schools, but uh, so there, there was a history of that at Queens College. Uh, so what happened is they started, SNCC started to do a recruiting uh, plan at Queens College. About a dozen of us, including some friends of mine who I knew, applied to, to join the uh, summer program. Uh, eventually, for different reasons, people washed out or decided to change their mind. Uh, and Andy and I were the two that remained. Uh, I, I do seem to recall going to off-campus uh, meetings. Um, and I would say there was a real focus on talking about the dangers of, of what it would be like to be in Mississippi for the summer to try to register people to vote. What, it was a long history of lynching people who registered to vote or tried to register to vote. It was a, a long history of uh, punishing people. If they didn't lynch people, they uh, 
they would take away, you know, they would lose their jobs. Fannie Lou Hamer was thrown out of her house that she had lived in for years. The irony is her husband wasn't thrown out because the plantation owner where she lived wanted him to continue to work, but he had to throw her out because she tried to vote, register to vote. Um, so they, there was a lot of uh, telling us how dangerous it was gonna be and, and be careful and make sure you ready and willing to do it. You know, I think it's an advantage to be young when, they, when you hear about these things, because uh, when you're 18 and 19 years old, you feel like you can, you're going to live forever and uh, nothing's going to get, you know, going to harm you. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, the, I became very intrigued about this. And the, the other thing I would say is that there's a part of me that just cannot tolerate um, unfairness, injustice, maltreatment of people. And that's clearly what was going on here. And it just uh, you know, rubbed me the wrong way. It just said, this is just completely unacceptable. Um, so Andy and I got to know each other a bit, you know, going to these meetings and not, we didn't see each other much during the, you know, during the year in the campus, but we decided to travel together out to Ohio for a week of training before we went to Mississippi. And uh, Andy's neighbor had a car and he was gonna go. So the three of us decided to go together. And uh, I got to spend the night at Andy's house, met his mother. Um, and then we left early the next day from New York City, headed out to Ohio. And Ohio was a very interesting experience because we did we did a lot of role playing while we were there, uh, and it you know at times became very uh, realistic. People you know white people playing black people, black people playing white people, threatening the the people who would have been uh, the volunteers. Sometimes you would be threatening somebody and sometimes you were being threatened. And it was a very real experience. At, at the I, same time- I was wondering also just in being in those types of situations, what kind of conversations were you having in between those trainings or like those moments when it got very real? What was that like to, to then walk out of the space that you were in and, and look towards what type of work you were going to be doing? Was there fear there? Were you nervous to go out after some of those sessions or, or did being in the group kind of help you through that? Well, you know, the passage of time has dimmed my memory quite a bit, which is helpful, I think. I, I honestly can say that I don't remember particularly being afraid. Um, I, I think, you know, I think we all felt very dedicated. We, we really believed in the mission that we we're going there to do. We really believed that we we're going to change things. Um, and, you know, I, I'll tell you one thing that really was very inspirational. Um, and and uh, when I would do these fundraising events for, for AGF, I always tried to bring, make music part of it. And, and part of what we experienced 
however we felt, whether we were afraid or uh, confused, and confused is probably a better word. Um, I think we, we, you know, we, we would all gather and we would sing a song or two or three. Not that I'm a, a, I'm a terrible singer, as were a lot of the volunteers, but there were still enough people who were good singers and, and could keep us going in the right tune. Uh, the, those songs, I think, were, were so inspirational. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard any of them. You probably have. Everybody knows We Shall Overcome. Um, I think what really happens when you're in those circumstances, they, they're not just words. You really, uh, you really feel the message. It reverberates in your soul. And I know when I was in Mississippi, many, many evenings we would have um, what they used to call mass meetings, usually in a church. And we would go there. Uh, I, I, the, where I was, I was in Greenwood, Mississippi. I worked with um, Stokely Carmichael, who you probably know the name. Um, and one of the things that really impressed me about Stokely was his sense of um, providing a very clear and strong message. So he often spoke at these mass meetings, he'd get up and he would talk. And then we would all, you know, link arms and we would sing two, three, four songs, these civil rights songs that just, they really were very essential. I, I realized that looking back And you also spoke a little bit about your experience with Andy um, being one of two people who ended up really going down and, and starting to do this vote work, registering people to vote. Um, can you just share a little bit more about your relationship with Andy and, and kind of what how you both felt going into that situation? Well, again, it's really hard to you know bring back specific memories, um, but I, I think we were both excited. And, and proud to be selected to go down there. This was going to be, um, this was going to be, and, you know, I don't think we, we thought about it in these terms specifically, but, you know, to be part of history, to make a, um, to make a real contribution to something that would be for the benefit of a lot of other people. It's an amazing feeling. And I, I think we were very idealistic in that sense. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't think in specific terms that I, even though I knew about the risks and all the stuff, and we would every day hear about, you know, the latest outrageous comments from the Ku Klux Klan or whatever, um, the governor of Mississippi, et cetera, the inactivity of the federal government to protect us and to protect the other civil rights workers who had already been down there and to protect the local people in Mississippi from you know, these um, terrorists, I guess we call them now. We didn't know that word back then. Um, but uh, you know, we didn't, I don't think we really thought about the risk as much as the excitement 
and the the feedback of being you know part of a movement it's it's you know it's a it's a shared thing so if you know you can't be in a movement by yourself you have to have lots of other people with you and if you get to that to the right um, state of mind you know it's the the one time i can remember in my life that i didn't feel as much of a, of an in, being an individual as i as we normally do you know you submerge yourself to some extent into the cohort itself and there was a great camaraderie among all of us you know we might not normally you know there were lots of people i met that that week in um, ohio for instance I, I probably never would have met them normally and wouldn't necessarily be friends with them but we you know all became friends it was a, a great sharing a sharing of risk and a sharing of opportunity and a sharing of, of belief in a better, I guess, a better world, a better tomorrow. For sure. And I'm wondering also, one of the things that we hear as ambassadors now in the present when we're trying to register students to vote, especially, is that they feel like they don't know enough to vote or they don't feel like they'll make a difference in voting. So for you, what were some of the strategies at that time to get people out to vote and to make sure that they they knew the power that they could potentially have? Well, you know, it was a very different world back then. Um, the, the basic strategy was I would, you know, they were um, in Greenwood, which was a reasonably sized, you know, small city. Um, there were several black neighborhoods. So first of all, they housed us with black families for our own safety, not the safety of the people that housed us because, you know, there was a, they would, the white power structure would, you know, would know who did what. And if they could seek revenge on them, they would. But for our, our safety, we were, all housed with with black families and we basically stayed within those black neighborhoods um, it was not really safe to go walking around all over greenwood unless we were in a large group an organized group of some kind um, so the basic strategy was to go out and talk to people you know we would basically go knock on a door somebody would say hello and hi ma'am i'm here to talk to you about registering to vote or however our introduction your introduction would be and we would sit down usually on a porch and just talk to them about you know had they thought about voting had they tried to vote you know what we were what we were looking to do um you know, I would say that we didn't have to educate people about the idea of voting. They, they knew about it. They voting, you know, um, was not open to them. That was the problem. It was a real repression. Uh, and people would tell us, listen, I'm a teacher. I know about voting. I went to college. But if I went down there to register to vote, I'm going to lose my job. And it's a decent job. I'm not going to get a better job here. So, the, you know, what I would say to you in, in terms of the uh, 
everybody you talk to understood the value of voting, understood the, 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 the potential power that they had, but the intimidation factor was so incredible, um, so real, that it, it really kept a lot of people from voting. Yeah, I think that that context that you provided is so valuable. I'm wondering that, you know, after over 50 years ago, you were working to help get people registered to vote. What is it like now to witness these record-breaking voter turnout numbers by young voters and Black voters, and also just in looking at the 2020 presidential election? Well, I'll go back a little bit before that. I have to tell you, um, when Obama got elected, I was very, very moved. And when he made that speech in Chicago, I, I really, uh, I broke down and, and cried. It was, it was something I never thought I would see. And I think that was an inspiration for a lot of people, both good and bad. I think it inspired a lot of really bad things that happened during his term and subsequently. Um, the four years of the uh, of Trump were just, you know, unabashedly awful from the, the civil rights point of view. Um, so I was uh, very um, pleased to see that he got defeated, to be honest with you. I, mean, I know we're not supposed to be partisan, but you know, he, he stood for everything that we were against. And it was really heartwarming to see the kind of turnout that, that happened. I know the AGF was active in many other organizations. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was really heartwarming, but the reaction has been equally awful as high our spirits, my spirits were with the, the positive things, the negative things are just, it, it is not as bad as it was in 1964 or 63 or 1955 or 1941. But, you know, they are trying to bring, bring those days back and it's just completely unacceptable. So. Yeah, and knowing that there are, are policies on the floor in a lot of states to limit voter registration access or just access to voting generally. What advice would you give to student activists today or just people who might come across this conversation who are still fighting for the right to vote? What would be your advice to them in, in trying to ensure that we can achieve change? I think it's a question of internal faith. You've got to believe in the cause You've got to look at yourself as part of a bigger movement and not think about yourself as much. Um, and it's not, that's not easy to do. You know, especially the last year with COVID and people not being able to physically be in the, in the same space. Uh, you know, the Zoom calls are helpful, but they're not the same thing. It's, you know, there's nothing like, um, being in a group, marching together, getting that feeling of being part of a positive flow, a positive movement. 
Um, yeah, that's what I would tell them. I, I say, you know, listen to the words and think about what you're trying to do and just don't, don't lose hope. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for answering these questions today. And if there's anything that you think that, that I missed in asking that you would want to share, I would love to hear it. But otherwise, thank you so much. And, and thank you for sharing your insight. It's so valuable. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I love what you've been doing, Tamia. And uh, you too, Mo. <laughs> and uh, I, I really, uh, I'm grateful for, for your, you know, what you're doing and, and for your belief in, in what I think is, is just the just cause. This concludes this week's episode of Live the Legacy podcast. Thank you to our guests, Robert Masters and Tamia Folks, and a special thank you to Tabik Music for all of the music that you heard throughout today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Live the Legacy podcast, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, this has been your host, Mo Banks with the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Bye everyone.